So you're in the right room if you are uh, looking to find out how a Chinese fruit became a Jewish symbol, the etrog. It seems unusual. Yes, I asked David if he could come here and Sukkot and do the program, but he was not available doing Sukkot. And since apparently we're still in the month of Cheshvan, are we still in Cheshvan? Yes, we are. I checked. We're still in Cheshvan, which they call Mar Cheshvan, the Jewish month where there are no holidays. I figured let's keep the holiday of Sukkot going. God knows it went on for like eight, nine days here anyway. So let's drag it into November. Uh, so thank you for coming. I'm sure you will enjoy the presentation and be a little surprised about the history of um, the etrog and citrus fruits in general. But before we get there, a few quick announcements. Number one, for those of you who are new, which I don't think many of you are, this is Community Scholar Program, and this is our 19th year of programs. We do record and upload to uh, Apple iTunes, and so you can find us at OCCSP on the podcast, and the program today will be recorded. We have about over 200 programs that are recorded, so you're welcome to download, listen to us as you go on adventures or even at your home. If you're listening online, please consider supporting us by making a donation at www.occsp.org. Um, upcoming programs I wanted to mention, we have a, there's a, a two-part mini-series with uh, Professor Richard Freund, be here December 11th through 12th. On December 11th in the evening, he'll be speaking at Congregation B'nai Israel. The topic will be Rabbinic and New Testament Archaeology, the top 10 discoveries of the 21st century. He is an archaeologist, uh, Professor Freund. And then uh, CSP will be hosting him the next day, um, Archaeology and the Holocaust. Um, I met with him when we were in Lithuania, and uh, he, was, he is in charge of uh, many projects in Lithuania, including the dig to um, dig out the Great Synagogue in Vilna in Vilnius. So uh, he has, I think, at least four or five specials on Nova. He has discovered the lost city of Atlantis, and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy meeting with him. So know that we opened registration for the CSP part already, and we have close to 50 people signed up. If you haven't signed up, please join us. The other thing I want to mention is you'll be getting in the mail something very soon. It's not as big as this, but it'll look like this. 19th annual CSP One Month Scholar. Our theme for the month, which includes 31 presentations, about 23 of them, well, most of them are non-repeating. I think there's only one that repeats. Fulfilling the dream, the fascinating story of modern Israel. I wanted to thank those of you who are donors to CSP, and I hope that I spelled your name right. I didn't marry you off to the wrong person like I did a few years ago to some people. Um, so I'll email you all this draft after the program. Take a look at it. Make sure your names are included correctly in the right categories. If you'd like to make a donation and get to another category, I will definitely accept that, no problem. Um, and I wanted to thank you, though, for making this happen. We're working on our 20th year scholar right now. Um, we are bringing, um, because of a grant we received from the Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County, um, we're bringing an uh, a artist in for a week, John Adam Ross. There's a handout about what he'll be doing. Uh, he'll be made, he has been made available to all the synagogues and um, Jewish learning institutions for one week on a space available basis. He can uh, speak at your synagogue. This is all underwritten, there's no cost. Speak at your synagogue, speak to a chavura. Um, he can uh, work with high school students, He's uh, work with teachers. He's coming in with another associate who founded the Inheritance Project. If you've heard of storytelling, he's one of the founders of storytelling. He's an actor, a playwright. Um, he basically brings Jewish text to life. Uh, and his focus for us in Orange County will be the water um, situation here that we face in Orange County using biblical texts to um, explore that theme. 
So if you happen to be a CSP member and you have a very strong Chavura who may be interested in meeting with him, just email me. And if there's space available, uh, I can make him uh, available for you. No cost. Okay. CSP travel adventures going back to Israel, October 18th through 30th. Many of you are joining me. We have one room left if you'd like to join us. Um, and uh, quite an adventure, 11 months from now. We're looking at a boutique arts trip to Israel, October 2021. Italy, do December um, 2021 with Mark Michael Epstein. And uh, we have an interest list only of that yet. I don't have the program to share, but we have about 63 people on the interest list. We could take 36 people. Uh, we are looking at going to Montreal with Jamie and Ellie from, who, from Yidlife who are here. I'll keep you posted if and when I have a program for that. This is the third year of our CSP uh, hat challenge. We will give winner, uh, we will announce winners when the one month scholar's in town at the end of his stay. So you still have a few months um, to get your pictures to me. We have some great ones this year. Uh, please take a moment and turn off your cell phones before we get started. And I do have one prop to show you. First of all, I wanted to thank Rochelle for bringing lemons, which is a citrus fruit. Limes, which is, is a lime a citrus fruit? Okay, it's a lime. Well, some are yellow, some are green. We'll go with lime because she grows it in her backyard organically. And um, I put it on the table because it's kind of thematic. Uh, but I brought my own special um, prop. This is what's left of our cat's family etrog. So it has a little bit shrunk down. But we use it. I put some um, cloves in it. We use it for our havdalah or basamim. So if anybody would like to smell um, afterwards, I'll have it here. Uh, and the reason I have it is obviously because we're going to be exploring the history of the etrog. So let me tell you who's here first, who our speaker is, and then we'll get started. We have Rabbi Dr. David Moster. He's the director of the Institute of Biblical Culture, a live and online community with classes taught by prof uh, professors from both Jewish and Christian backgrounds. David will probably talk a little bit about what he does and how, if you're interested in learning more, you can do it. Um, with his institute. David received his PhD in Hebrew Bible from Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Before attending Bar-Ilan, David spent two years in Israel uh, and a decade in New York City where he received a BA, an MA, an MS, and a rabbinical degree from Yeshiva University. I'm sure your parents were very happy to just keep paying. Well, maybe, maybe you paid too, I don't know. Maybe I don't know, but a lot of degrees. Um, as well as an MA in Hebrew Bible from New York University. In addition to his publications in the Journal of Biblical Literature and the Encyclopedia of the Bible and its reception, uh, David recently authored Etrog, How a Chinese Fruit Became a Jewish Symbol, which is available for sale um, online for about $185. How much is this? It went down $55. Okay. Okay. David is also a fellow in the Department of Judaic Studies at Brooklyn College. Anybody here from Brooklyn College? Yeah, we, have, we have some people hiding around. David grew up in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania, now lives in Yonkers, New York, with his wife, a psychiatrist, and their two children. That was the update. Please join me in welcoming uh, David Moster to Orange County. And be ready to be awed about where the etro comes from. Thank you. Hi everyone, um, it's really exciting to be here, thank you. I'm glad that we have these lemon limes here because um, you can really get a smell of an etrog, that, that citrus smell. When you smell it, it doesn't really smell like anything, but the secret is you scratch it and then you get that zest. It really, it's a fantastic smell. So um, to kind of give a, a nice addition to the talk. So I'm gonna speak to you today about the etrog 
how a Chinese fruit became a Jewish symbol. Since this is being recorded for a podcast, I'll try and be extra descriptive of what we see here in the, um, in the PowerPoint. So what we're looking at here today is the etrog. And many, hopefully many of you have seen this, this kind of, this picture that the etrog is, is being sold by itself here. This is from Brooklyn, New York. And the etrog is in my mind the only fruit I've ever seen in my life that whole, has a whole market just for it. That you don't go, there's no tomatoes here, there's no, um, there's no pomegranates, it's just the etrog. It is its own unique fruit. And so here we have in Brooklyn, New York, again, an etrog seller. This is in his caravan on 13th Avenue in Brooklyn. And what I want to focus on is we're looking at a man in front of the, uh, a group of etrogum, and there's a number next to these etrogs. Do you see this here? Can someone make it out? $100 per etrog. The ones in the back are, oh, the ones in the back are gonna be three to $500, okay? So this is not just like for emphasis, but to actually think about for ourselves how much is an etrog worth? And this is gonna be one of the things we're gonna be talking about today. And I'll ask you as we go on our journey to tell me what you think an etrog might be worth. And is the sound coming in okay here? Okay, great. Okay, so let's get started. Um, just some background if, if no one's ever seen an etrog or knows what it is. The etrog is important in Judaism on the holiday of Sukkot and here we're looking at a young man praying with the four species, the Arba Minim, uh, which are the, the Lulav, the Hadas, and here he has his etrog in his hand, and he's actually at the Kotel, if you can see in the background. So here he is praying, because you, you, we use the etrog as part of the four species to pray on Sukkot. And here we have some kids in the Sukkah learning about the Lulav and etrog and doing the mitzvah. So once a year, it becomes very important. And what I'm gonna speak about today is a place called Yunnan. And here we're looking at Yunnan, China, and we see some nice Chinese architecture, the pagoda building, these giant cliffs in the background, and this is where the etrog comes from. So we're gonna be speaking about this land, and the question is gonna be, how did it get from here in, to this? And we're, here what we're looking at is some mosaics from the land of Israel in the first few centuries of the Common Era, and we're looking, oh, here's the etrog right on the, right on the um, floor. We have the coins of Bar Kokhba. Here we have the, the uh, etrog. And here you have the lulos right on the coins. And here we have another nice synagogue with the menorah and two etrogim flanking it on the sides. So I'm going to speak about this journey. It's about 4,000 miles. And we're going to go all the way from Yunnan, China, all the way to Israel. Okay, so that's what we're going to speak about. So this story actually begins with a Russian named Nikolai Vavilov. And, and Vavilov was a botanist, and he had this idea that all plants come from a place on Earth. All plants, if you think about it, where does it come from? Where does the pineapple come from? Where do avocados come from? He said all plants come from a certain place, and we can find out where they come from based on the genetic diversity in that region. So for example, we have like, how many strains of apple do we have in America? Six? Your Granny Smith? Okay, there are thousands, right? And many growing naturally in the lands such as Turkey and in Eurasia, right? So where is the most genetic diversity? Where can you find the most genetic diversity? And that was one thing. Another thing he wanted to look at is where did parasites evolve for that specific plant? 
That's where you can tell where a plant came from. And Vavilov died before he could really do this, but DNA today is really the main thing. You can look at the DNA as where is the most genetic diversity, which plants and which fruits have the most genetic diversity. And this is from the USDA, and we're actually seeing where different plants come from. And when I ask where do pineapples come from, they actually come from South America. Where does avocado come from? Mexico. Uh, interestingly, blueberries come from here in North America. I, didn't, I never really knew that. And when you start looking where do all these things come from, you start noticing that the citrus fruits are coming, they're putting them in the Asia region, okay? And so when it comes to citrus fruits in general, not just the etrog, but all citrus fruits, we actually are looking to one place in specific, Yunnan, China, here it is. Yunnan, China is called in Southwest China and the regions around it, right? This isn't a political border for this fruit. The fruit could care less about the modern region, but the, the lands around it in Northeast India and Burma and so on and so forth. And so Yunnan, China is this amazing place that's just south of the Himalayas where you get giant parallel river valleys, thousands of feet tall. And so what happens is it was a great generator for evolution because in this valley, um, the seeds would grow one way, but they were cut off from the seeds in the next valley. So in one valley you could get, let's say, uh, limes, and in the other valley you get something more like a kumquat or something like that, so that each citrus fruit would grow in its own way, almost like the island effect, but with mountains instead. So this is in Yunnan, China, and actually many people might know of Yunnan because the book and uh, movie Lost Horizon, the Shangri-La, was actually Yunnan. And here you can see the, the cold mountains of the Himalayas, and then you come out into this lush, beautiful valley. That's Yunnan. And the Yunnanese tourist industry did something really smart. They took a town which had some name, and they renamed it Shangri-La, and it worked. It gets like a thousand percent more tourism than anything around. So people go still to visit Shangri-La because of Lost Horizon. So that is this lush area just off of the Himalayas. That is the land of Yunnan. And what we're looking at here is a man who is eating part of a citron that was growing wild in his backyard. Okay? So this is an, so basically the scientific name for etrog is citrus, citrus medica, citron. Um, now all etrogium are citrons, but not all citrons are etrogium. So this might, you might not want to bring this to synagogue, and we'll see some other examples, but you, you could if you wanted to, uh, and try for it. But what we have is my friend David Karp went around Yunnan and documented 23 different strains of citron growing wild in Yunnan, and they each have local dialect names, which is another indication that some, a plant comes from an area. You know, if you have 23 names for etrog in Yunnan, that makes a lot of sense that it came from Yunnan. So we have doghead, jingong water, ninja giant, we're gonna see that in just a moment, it is giant, persistent stigma, pump, pumpkin, because it looks like a pumpkin, it does, and Waisham bullet. And so here what we have are growing, picked by my friend David Karp, picked off the side of the road in Yunnan. You can see here he's not in a, in a farm or anything. It's kind of like, well, you know, where I come from in Yonkers, New York, we have pine cones all over the place. I don't know if you guys have a lot of conifers here. I know you have some just up north, but I'm saying the pine cone just grows naturally. It's not a big deal. But like someone from, let's say, a different part of the world would come and say, whoa, what is that thing, right? And that's kind of us with these etrogum. It grows naturally there. It's not a big deal. But for us, we, we notice our nice etrog trait 
the pitum, right? A nice trait of the etrog, um, and it's interestingly on some of the fruits on the tables today. So um, this over here is the ninja giant. You can see how big this is. This isn't a small person, this is a big fruit. Um, and over here we have some other types of um, etrogium citrons, and I want you to just notice that at the bottom of these, uh, of these fruits here, um, what we're looking at is there are some, you know, you see some extensions, do you see that? Almost like a finger, can you see those fingers, right? Um, that's important because this is also a citron. This is Citrus medica. This is technically, this is genetically an etrogue. It's like, it is, it will, if you take the pollen from this tree and that tree, it's gonna be totally fine. This is an etrogue, but it's just a very different type of etrogue. So I wouldn't bring this to synagogue, um, or actually maybe you should bring it to synagogue. You, get a, you definitely get a nice, uh, a, a nice reaction. Um, I don't know, it's up to you, but this is called, um, it, it has many different names, the most popular, is the Buddha's hand, because if you look right here, it kind of looks like the fingers sticking out. Do you see that? It, it, yeah, it looks like the fingers sticking out, these long extensions, this is called the Buddha's hand, um, and there are many different terms for it. I actually got these, they're starting to sell them in supermarkets. They're grown here in California. They're starting to sell them in supermarkets as kind of decorations for your table. So I actually got these from a supermarket. Um, and so in China today, the etrog is very, it's, it's important, um, but the, the Buddha's hand is more important. And here what we see is a, uh, thousands of slices of Buddha's hand citron being dried out in the sun. And these aren't like raisins that you're gonna eat. These are actually gonna be used for Chinese medicine. So in, in Chinese medicine, these become important. And what we're looking at here on eBay, if you pay $38, you can get some nice pieces of what is called fo shu, but we would call that citron, right? And here you can actually see the little, the, the little fingerlers coming off of the, of the fruit, and these are gonna be used for your herbs and so on and so forth. And interestingly, this, which is Jing Wan, 500 grams, this right here, this is our etrog. This is the same thing. This is our etro dried out for sale on eBay for $23.99. Um, much cheaper than some etro we, we, we buy in, in uh, Sukkot time. But just showing you that this fruit isn't only necessarily Jewish. Even today in China, it is still used for in that culture. Um, and if we go back to ancient texts though, there's something interesting. The most ancient Chinese text to mention of citrus fruit, here we have some oranges from about 600 BCE, one of the most ancient texts to mention it. But the citron, the etrog, isn't mentioned in Chinese texts until about two, 300 of the common era. And the reason why I think is that the orange is dis discussed much more, the lime, the kumquat, the pomegranate, is, uh, not the, the grapefruit, because the etrog comparatively wasn't really useful. It wasn't, if you like have a whole grove of, of grapefruits and kumquats and lemons and limes, you know, which you can eat, the etrog, you, you don't really eat it, it has almost no fruit. It, it's almost like kind of that, that pine cone I was telling you, nobody really uses it. Some people make, make a use of it maybe as a decoration, but it's not really so popular. And so that's why I think the etrog isn't mentioned in Texas early as the, as the oranges are. 
So that is the etrog in ancient China, and it kind of is used somewhat in medicine, but not really the form we use it in, and it wasn't so important compared to other citrus fruits. So I'd like to ask you a question based on like what we're talking about is how much do you think a Jingwan would have been worth in ancient China? Like how much would a pine cone be worth in my neighborhood? Like Nothing? Very little. So a, a monetary figure. Ten cents. Ten cents. I like it. Okay. Ten cents. Good. Thank you. So we have a ten cent etrog. You pick it right off the tree. It's not a big deal. You're not going to eat it. And that's where the etrog starts out. Then what happens is that it starts growing naturally and spreading naturally to northern India. And in northern India, the citrus fruits that would grow naturally would be the lemon and possibly some limes, whereas in China, it would be more the orange. Okay, so the citrus fruits are spreading out in different ways naturally. And so in northern India, just like in Yunnan, you have citrons and lemons growing naturally. Now here what we're looking at is a statue of Sushruta. Sushruta was an ancient Indian doctor, um, and he was from the first millennium before the common era, probably around the first temple period. And he is best known for, for being the first documented person in history to do cataract surgery. Yeah, so really, really, both my parents are eye doctors, so this is like the one, the one area that our interests align is, is, is Sushruta. But otherwise, they're like, what are you, yeah. So what we have here is Sushruta, and there was another um, doctor named Karika, and they would write in texts like this with translations such as this. And in their text, they mention, Karaka, for example, mentions the etrog 40 times. Okay, 40 times. And the way he mentions it is as part of the medicine, as a medicinal. And I found this on the internet. The spelling is really bad. I wish they did spell check. Um, but what this is is a modern equivalent of the text that we see here. This is basically an English version of, of what Karaka was saying thousands of years ago. And so we have here, the fruit is useful to counter, counter alcoholism. An acid juice fruit is specially to cheek excess alcohol consumption and its complication. So basically what we're seeing is that um, if, if you have a hangover or something like that, or you, you have a problem with drinking, it's going to help you, okay? Fruit in general is used against intoxication, unconsciousness, and various all, all, other all elements. And then finally we have really kind of a digestive fruit so that the fruit juice is given as it is useful in apepsia, vomiting, abdominal colic, hemorrhoids, and other similar diseases of gastrointestinal tract. The juice of the fruit is useful in respiratory disease, especially cough, asthma, bronchitis, and hiccup, also throat infection. So what we have here is that anything going in the abdominal system, the gastro system, it is going to help you, and different parts of the fruit are gonna help you. So here we actually see in these ancient texts that the etrog has some importance it would be used as a medicinal. You would want to use it if you had some problems. And it also starts, we also start seeing that the etrog becomes important in the culture of the land. So over here we have a picture of the god Shiva. This is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And what we have on the left are jewels, which symbolize wealth. And what we have on the right is an etrog. And the etrog symbol, symbolizes fertility. 
And you might be wondering, well, why is the etrog fertility? What is going on? Why would that be fertility? So if you slice open many etrogium, like this one, which I sliced open, you notice that there are, there's absolutely little to no fruit. It's basically a seed container. And so it is entirely a fruit of seeds. That's what it is. So this is a symbolism of fertility. I, I don't think they knew about the pomegranate in ancient India, which may have been a better fertility seed kind of concept, but this is what they had, and so that's how the etro became important in their iconography. So here, the question is, in ancient India, how valuable is what they called a matalunga, or a bija puraka? That's how they call it in the ancient text. So, so a monetary figure, someone give out... Ten dollars. Ten dollars. I like that. It's kind of like you go, you go to CVS. You know, whatever you buy, it's going to be $10 in the medicinal thing. So, you know, $10 for cough medicine, $10 for a, for a hangover kit. I don't know what that is really, but like, you know, something like that. So $10. So we've gone from $0.10 cents to $10. Good. So we are on our journey. We are going from Yunnan, China to northern India. Now we are going to go to the lands of Persia and the two different capitals there in the lands of Persia. Okay, so something happened in, um, at the end of the 5th century, um, what we, 6th century, is what we have are the conquering of, of Western Indian lands. Okay, where is the, the Indus River? Where'd it go? It's, I think it's right here. So what we have are the conquering of Western Indian lands by the Persians. And this is in the Second Temple period. And the reason this is important is because once the Persians would conquer an area, they would take the plants and put those plants in their gardens. And this is called a paradise garden. It's in Hebrew, we still have the same term, pardes. Um, paradise garden, it comes from the Iranian. And there were a few key features. You would want to have some beautiful plants and trees, but also there's often kind of four rivers meeting at one point. Right? A lot of people often talk about Eden in, in kind of the paradise concept, thinking of that with four rivers. But it, what, what you basically have is a very rectangular shaped kind of garden. And, you know, for those of you who have Persian carpets or Persian rugs at home or at a friend's house, maybe take a look. I, I'd say about a third of the time when you take a nice look, you realize that they're actually gardens. Here we have the four rivers. See those? And then if you look closely at the animals, these are fish and geese. And over here we have the trees and the birds, right? So everything in its own order. The Paradise Garden is a very ordered garden. And the Persians would make them for their kings. And the most famous Paradise Garden of all is actually not in Persia. It's in the Taj Mahal. And what we see here is that really long four-part structure, okay? So that is the Paradise Garden, also known as Chakhar Bagh, and uh, that is what, what would happen. And what, what, the, what the Persian kings would do is they would plant these in their gardens. And today in Iran, in Persia, to this day, the etrog is still in their cultural diet. So um, over here we have what is, you know, what many of us call Bubby's etrog jelly recipe. <laughs> They call it moraba ya belong. It's the same exact thing. It's just add the fruit and add the sugar and, you know, break it down. And that's what, and that's what you have. And interestingly, they also have in the grocery stores, over here you buy citrus jam, citron jam. You see that right there? 
it's hard to see citron jam in um, Iranian grocery stores. So I wrote a book about the etrog and I wanted to use this picture in the book. And you can't just, it's not like YouTube, you can't just put any picture you want on. You need to get some real permission for a book. And I remember emailing this grocery store in Iran. And I'm like, hello, my name's David Moster, I'm writing this book, can I please use your picture for my book? And Gmail was like, uh, your, your email is on the way. Please, we'll get back to you in a day. So I'm like, okay, fine. This day two, they're like, your email's on the way. We'll get back to you in a day. I was like, okay, fine. And then the third day, they're like, it couldn't get there. We're sorry. So, so basically, I feel like I'm on some sort of government watch list of trying to communicate with the Iranians about this fruit. So, so what we have here is the citron jam. It's just part of their culture as something you would eat as a jam. Interestingly, this, the etrog, the word etrog, we actually get this from the Iranians. In, in um, the ancient Avestan text, the name for etrog is wadring, okay? And if you can follow along in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic, also in the English, what we get from wadring becomes something like adrang, becomes something like atrang, and then the N drops out and you get etroga etrog, okay? Interestingly, this is also where you get the name orange from because when people misunderstood when more citrus fruits came later, they thought, oh, the orange is the etrog, you end up getting things like naranja. In, in, in other languages or orange, okay? Now, so pay attention, this little N here is gonna be important because what we have is in our word etrog, we actually have a remnant of this in the Talmud Kedushan. So can I get a volunteer to, to maybe read this passage? Volunteer? Yeah, please, Joe. Right, don't say etronga. We call it etro. Come on, you're so formal. You know, don't say etronga, it's an etro. So, so what is this N doing here? Right, it's from Wadring. Right, it's, the, it's kind of like the, the residual um, letter from the previous stage. So that's what we have. And we also, in speaking of names, we also get the name, the scientific name for the etrog is Citrus Medica, as you can see here, Citrus Medica. And this is very often confused as being the medical citrus because we saw all those Indian and Chinese uses, right? It's actually, no, it means the citron of the Medes and the Medes were the group with the Persians. So it's basically what we would call the Iranian citron. That's what we would call it, okay? And so that's where we get that name from, okay? So here we are in ancient Persia, the kings are growing this. They're the only ones growing it. It's in, the, in their gardens. So, and it doesn't grow naturally like it did. You have to water it. You have to be very careful with those rivers watering it. So, so now the question is, how much do you think a wadring is worth? $100. $100, okay. Sold. Good. How much? 57 57 okay. Yeah, it's... Right? It's something like, you'd be like, wow, I got this from my friend who works at the palace. It's really cool. Wow, I've never seen anything like this. And this was in the ancient world where fruits were not traveling like they do today. It was, you have what grows naturally in your region. Okay, so we are now going to move from the land of Iran, and we're going to get to kind of the thing that's probably most interesting to us is Israel. And so here I have a quote about the Iranians, but it's from a Greek author. 
So could somebody kindly read for me this passage about the Iranians? Yes. Okay, so wherever he goes, he doesn't stay at a hotel. <laughs> he wants there to be a paradise. So in the Persian Empire, you're going to have paradises. Okay, can you continue, please? So you are a governor in my empire. You need to do what I do, and that means you need to have a paradise garden. Okay? So that's what the Greeks are telling us about, um, about the Persians. And how many governors were there in Persia? Does anybody? Can anyone? It's from the one example is actually in the Megillah of Esther. We read that there are 127. Okay? 127 provinces in the land of uh, uh, in the empire okay so what we have here is you have 127 paradise gardens scattered all the way around and if it's a little less or a little more it doesn't matter but you have a whole great deal scattered all around and this is the persian empire and we are up here from where the etro grows naturally and they're spreading it here because it grows in one part of the empire they want it growing in this part of the empire they want it growing here and here and so that's how it gets spread and then when we come to Israel, archaeologists found a paradise garden from the Persian period at Ramat Rachel. Ramat Rachel used to be outside of Jerusalem. Now today it's part of Jerusalem because Jerusalem just is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And this is the paradise garden with the pool. Actually, interestingly, coincidentally, Ramat Rachel today is best known for its pool water area. Like today, a lot of Israelis like going there, but we're going to be speaking about ancient pools. So here you see a pool here in the Paradise Garden, watering the entire garden. And what happened was, is actually it was a little out of order. There we go. So um, what happened was, is here we're looking at the complex during the Persian period, and everything that's brown is the garden. And over here is what they call pool number two, the archaeologists. And there's an archaeobotanist, meaning someone who studies the archaeology of plant matter, who had a really interesting idea. She said, this pool, let's say in the year 486 BCE, it was plastered. Let's say. On the day it was plastered, there was pollen floating around. So on that one split second of what day, the, the pollen that was floating around got stuck in there and it was stayed there for 3,000 years, 2,500 years. So what she did is she started slaking off the plaster and she found a number of species of plants and this is what she found. And she found figs, she found grapes, which you would expect, olives. She found lilies, and here we have the cedars of Lebanon, and all these different types of plants. And then she, the walnut, and she also found the etrog. And this is what she found. The top two rows here are what she found, and the bottom one is the, is the contemporary um, analog. So over here we have this, in this row, for example, we have, you see the, the bunching up of the pollen? See that? Right here, this is what she found with modern etrogen. Okay? And so she was able to identify these, and that was what she found in this garden. So we now know that the Persians were growing it in the land of Israel. And then what we're going to do is 
we're going to talk about how this became, now that it's in Israel, how this became part of the lul of an etrog. Why, why is this person praying with an etrog that doesn't come from Israel? How did this happen? And, and so let's, let's kind of explore it just a little bit. Okay, so what I would like to do is ask somebody to read here a work from Gustav Dahlman. Gustav Dahlman was a person who went around the land of Israel um, in the first few decades of the 1900s, and he would document what all the farmers were doing. He wanted to know when people were planting, what they were doing. So could someone kindly read uh, um, this quote from Gustav Dahlman? Yes. Excellent, thank you. So around Sukkot time, oh, I'm sorry. So around Sukkot time, people are going out into the vineyards and building their sukkah, right? And these aren't Jews. These are the Arabs in the land. So they're building their sukkah at this time. They're going to eat, they're going to put a lot of leafy branches on the sukkah, and they're going to eat all the fruit that they're gathering, okay? So this is what a sukkah, this is actually, we have pictures of what this looks like. Because in, these are in the National Library of Congress, these photos. They're called the Matson Collection. We have pictures of what these Sukkot looked like in the land of Israel in the 1910s and 1920s. And here we have a man, two people, with their sukkah, which would give them some shady, some shade from the sun, you know, at harvest time. Okay? Here we have what Dom was describing on poles. And you would want it on poles because now you're cooler, and also no animals are going to get to you. So here what we have is a vineyard with the sukkah right next to it. Here we have another sukkah, and you can just see how leafy it is. The leafier, the better. That's going to cool it, and it's also cool because you are no longer on the floor. Okay? And what about the fruit? What would the fruit have looked like? Oh, before we get there, here we have one giant sukkah. Um, this is by a Bedouin, probably in the Sinai. And you can notice the best leaf that you would want to build a sukkah would be, you see these giant palm leaves? Because with one leaf, you get a giant leaf. You don't have to put um, hundreds of leaves together. So you get a lot of, the palm leaves go really great. And, so, and this is what a fruit seller was selling in Jerusalem in 1910. So this is what your fruit would have looked like before modern agricultural techniques. This is what you'd be getting. And so if we kind of, um, so, one second. So if we kind of go back to what Dalton was saying, we can see the leafy branches, right? And we can see the, their fill of fruit here in these pictures. And that's, and that's how the, in the 1910s people were farming. And so now what I want to do is talk about the festivals in ancient Israel. And there were three festivals in ancient Israel, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And Passover, Pesach, was at the time of the barley harvest. It was the time of the barley, um, the barley offering. Shavuot was the time of the wheat harvest, the time of the wheat offering. And Sukkot was the time of the tree fruit harvest. Those are all those fruits that grow in Israel, pomegranates, dates, olives, grapes, and figs. Okay, so these are your three festivals in ancient Israel. And then when we get to Vayikra 2340, what we actually read here in English, could somebody kindly read, a volunteer?
shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall live in Sukkot for seven days. All citizens of Israel shall live in Sukkot. Excellent. So you're supposed to live in Sukkot for seven days. And it says you should take this fruit, right? We just saw the fruit. You should take these branches, bows of leafy trees, willows of the brook, right? And you should dwell in Sukkot. So in the first temple period of, of the, the most likely understanding of Sukkot was that you were doing those pictures we just saw. You're a farmer in ancient Israel. You're celebrating your harvest. And then all of a sudden, how do we get to here? How do we get to the Lulav and Etrog, which is a very different understanding of this verse? Because this phrase, beautiful tree fruit, is going to be understood to be the Etrog. So let's talk about what kind of changed in the second temple period from the first temple period and how these interpretations came about. So can I have a volunteer to read these passages from Nehemiah and Ezra? Yes. Okay, so Ezra and Nehemiah, these are second temple period texts, and for the first time in the Tanakh, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, what we're seeing is that people aren't, people aren't doing things because God told them. People aren't doing things because their, um, their parents told them. People are doing it because it's written. We, ha we have a turn to books. And once you start turning to books, and I'm going to do it the way it is written, that allows the start of interpretation. Once you have a text, you can start interpreting it. And so the words pre hadar, which in Hebrew are really difficult to understand, they could mean a number of things. Does it mean fruit of a beautiful tree? Like a really nice tree, maybe a date palm? Does it mean beautiful fruit from a tree? Like a really nice fruit, like a pomegranate? Does it mean branches of a tree? Does it mean branches of the olive tree? All these different types of understanding people could do. And so we're in a period of interpretation, okay? So, we're interpreting this phrase, Priyatsadar, the beautiful tree fruit, and we want to know what it is. And there's something important to know about when you celebrate a holiday, or any ritual in, in general, is that what makes kind of holidays special is their differentness, or really any ritual occasion. So, like, for example, over here, we see a Christmas tree, right, with the lights. For the rest of the year, nobody puts lights on their trees. Actually in this fashion, right? This type of lights, right? Um, here, I'm from New York, so we have the ball dropping on January. It, nobody does this in November. It's a one time, you do it in this special time. So, uh, or even a wedding day. So the white dress, right? The white dress, there's nothing inherently important about white. I think in India, they have red dresses for their weddings. Um, it's that nobody wears dresses like this to work. It's a very special dress. And then over here, we have in just a few days, we have I tried to get a good turkey picture. You have a nice turkey for Thanksgiving. Turkey and Thanksgiving go hand in hand. Now, this is just in general culture, but we know this very well in the Jewish culture, is that every holiday has its special, unique food or fruit or ritual. So I'm not even going to say what these are. Just tell me what holiday. And, and this is made explicit in the Haggadah when on the Passover night, why is this night different? And the answer is like, it's different. We do different things, you know? 
everything, so differentness is what makes it important. So at this time, Jews in the Second Temple period are interpreting the Bible. They want to know what this beautiful tree fruit is. And they have five fruits that they see every day of their life. Every day, in one form or another, whether it's stored or it's in their orchards, you have your pomegranates, you have your grapes, you have your olives, you have your dates, you have your figs. That's it. There are mentions of the apple in Song of Songs, but those apples are probably crab apples, not eaten. Not like we eat them today. Okay, so these are your five, right? And then all of a sudden, comes in these Persians in their beautiful garden, growing their amazing fruits, and, whoa, what is that yellow thing? Whoa, it smells really different. Whoa, it, you need to water it? I've never heard of such a thing. We don't water trees, right? What is this? This is something very different. It's a fruit. It's beautiful in its own way, in its own way, right? It's beautiful. And then that's how, in the Second Temple period, when people were interpreting how to, interpret, how to understand Sukkot, we end up getting the interpretation that the etrog is part of Sukkot. Okay, and then we end up getting sales like $100 because it's a very special, unique fruit for a very special, unique time. And then in just eight days, it's worth nothing, right? That's, that's how it works. It's very unique. And then it goes, the, the most expensive etrog I ever held was $345. The most expensive etrog I've ever seen bought was $700. And I've heard there are $2,000 ones. And it's also, do you ever see that movie from Israel, Ushbizen? Right? I think it's a great thing. They call the etro, they call it the yahalom, the diamond. And I think it's a great analogy. It's like a diamond, one little scratch, it could be worth 20, not 20 dollars, a few hundred. But if it's the perfect size and the perfect alignment, thousands, right? And so that's what's going on with the etro after the Circan Temple period, okay? So how valuable is an etro? Priceless, okay, that's the best, I've given this talk a few times, that's the best I've heard. Yeah, priceless, okay. It's expensive, right, because it's only grown for one purpose, one time a year, right, um, and it needs some help to grow, so you need somebody who's going to be helping it grow, okay? So that's how valuable the etrog would be. Um, $30 today, maybe 50 something like that. So now what I want to do in this part of the talk is move into something very interesting from the first few centuries of the Common Era. I want to speak about the etrog as a symbol of Judaism. And what I mean by a symbol, not a Jewish symbol, like we just saw the laka. The laka is a Jewish symbol, but I wouldn't necessarily say that people are walking around with laka necklaces, <laughs> right? Or laka tattoos or something, right? It's, it's part, maybe, but you know, I'm talking about a real symbol of Judaism. So like, how do I make the, a flag and say that this is a Jewish flag. Star of David, right? If I'm the state of Israel, I want to say my stamp is a Jewish stamp. How do I do it? The menorah, right? This is my synagogue here in New Rochelle, the menorah, and then down here are the Ten Commandments. Over here we have menorah, Star of David, the Ten Commandments. Over here we have, if you want to say this college is Jewish, you have a Torah, you have Hebrew, right? Um, the Chai, right? And over here on this gravestone, we have um, a whole lot of, we have Hebrew, we have the Star of David, we have the menorah. And every time I give this talk, I want to try and kind of tweak it to the crowd that I'm giving at. So, so if you're, let's say, a basketball fan in Southern California, how would you want to make yourself be a Jewish basketball fan? 
So it didn't come out. Oh, you can't see it well, but this is a T-shirt with the Los Angeles Lakers, right? Right? You make it Hebrew, right? Hebrew is a sign of, of the Judaism in America. Everything's in Hebrew in, in Israel, so that doesn't mean anything. But in America, it means, hey, this is a Jewish thing. So these are symbols of Judaism. So the main thing about a symbol is that you only need it for one reason, is you need to differentiate yourself from someone similar to you. So in this, um, in this, in this example from a cemetery, this is probably a military cemetery, what we see is that you have Christian, 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 Jew. Right? And that this is what separates the two from each other. Now, in the ancient, in the first two centuries of the Common Era, there were three groups living in the land of Israel. And the first group, the Christians, had no problem distinguishing themselves from Jews. It was very obvious that a Christian church is not a Jewish synagogue because of this, a cross, right? The cross, and there are some other signs, such as the fish, and other things as well or New Testament scenes like that. So it, no Jew was worried about really distinguishing themselves from the Christians so much. But there was another group that was awfully close to the Jews. And here what we're looking at is a Samaritan high priest on Mount Gerizim in Israel with a Torah, 99% similar to our Torah, right? And the people in the background praying. Okay? So the Samaritans are an ancient group who are still around today, depending on the count, anywhere between 800 and 2,000 living in Israel. And so what we have are these Samaritans are around. So the Jews needed to differentiate themselves from the Samaritans. So the question is, how are they going to do it? And it wasn't always easy. So, for example, what do you think? Would this be a Jewish or a Samaritan synagogue? Looks Jewish. Menorah, that's very, that's, Jews do that all the time. Shofar, right? This is the machteh, the fire pan. It could have either been for the menorah or for the, the altar, okay? This, many people think, is the temple. It's probably just the Torah ark, okay? These all look very Jewish, right? Right? We could see this in a shul today, but this is Samaritan. So this is a Samaritan synagogue. And here we see the up close with the shofar and the, and the menorah and so on. Well, good question. We're going we're to say, yeah. So, so here, we have another, here we have another Samaritan synagogue with the, same, with the same items. We have the menorah. You see the shofar, two shofar. We have the fire pan. Over here, we have the table in the temple. And people often like to say that this is the first bagel and coffee that, <laughs> that they've ever seen. Um, but it's probably, I don't know what it was, you know. I'm fine. Yes. These? This? Right, okay. Yeah, so every, basically everyone was doing Greek stuff by this time. So, yeah, this, this right here, this formation with these pillars, right, is not representative of ancient Israelite archaeology, right? Um, it's more until you get to the Hellenistic period, okay? So, um, so what we have here is, again, the, the Torah scroll arc, right, with its with its um, curtain, okay? And then moving on, what we have is, if you want to say this lamp is a Samaritan lamp, 
you do the same stuff. You have your, you have your Torah ark, you have your shofar, you have your menorah, and you have your oil for the menorah, and you can even have a cup. Okay, so this is how you do it. Here's another example. Um, they're hard to see, but these are some examples. Now, what about this one? Is this Jewish or, or is this Samaritan? Jewish. How do you know? Right, the lulav and etrog. So if, if we're at a time, the begin, as time would go on, Jews would really differentiate themselves much, much more from the Samaritans. But the old, one of the oldest traditions of Judaism, as opposed to Samaritanism, is the etrog. It's from the Second Temple period. And so what we have here is that the, the Jewish thing has the same ark, the same menorah, the same fire pan, the same shofar. These could have been built by the same you know, mosaic layers. They're that similar. But you have the lulav and etrog. Make sure you put a lulav and etrog in there. That says that this is a Jewish space. So you're saying the Samaritans do not observe any Sukkot? The Samaritans, their Sukkot is very different than our Sukkot. For them, there's no such thing as the four species. All those species, and there's no etrog whatsoever, all those species are meant to build the Sukkah. So the Samaritans put that stuff to build the Sukkah. And that's how they celebrate. Interestingly, as time went on and they were persecuted in their own right, they moved their sukkah inside. And now their sukkah is mostly fruit. And in the weird quirk of history, at the center of most Samaritan sukkot is an etrog. <laughs> They're living in Israel. They're Jews all around. It's a special fruit. It makes sense. So they, they incorporate it, but you don't need an etrog like we need an etrog, right? They could put up a, a papaya. We wouldn't take a papaya to synagogue. Or people I know wouldn't, right? So, um, so that's what's going on. So here we have this, um, the, our lulav and etrog. And now what I'm going to show you is just example after example after example of how the etrog became a symbol of Judaism in this time. It's not in our time. People aren't walking around with etrog necklaces. So it did in this time. So here you're entering a synagogue. What do you have? You have your wreath. And on two sides, it says you have your lulav and your etrog. See that? And can anyone guess what this might say here when you're entering a synagogue, a nice plaque? Shalom Aleichem. What? <laughs> so, peace upon Israel? What did I hear? Shema? Shalom Aleichem. Right? No, it's actually a lot more like our synagogue. It says, this was donated by Proclos. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so it's really like it doesn't change, you know? <laughs> That's, that's tradition. That's the oldest Jewish tradition, right? Um, so what we have, this is the best example of any etrog in the land of Israel that we know of. It's just really gorgeous. Um, the one thing is it doesn't have that bend in the middle that some will, others will see. But also pay attention to how they bound the lulav. See? Those lulav things that we buy, that they're almost like those... The, remember that? Do you know that game like with the... With, oh, yeah. you, like you get your fingers stuck? It's almost like those, but it doesn't stuck, right? Our lulav holder, I don't know what that is called. And if you know what that is called, please let me know. They didn't have them. They just used string, a little bit of string. Um, here we have another Jewish um, uh, synagogue. This one starts getting a little bit weird. What we, have is our, what we have is our ark in the middle. We have our menorah, right? We have our shofar. We have our fire pan. We have our very interestingly, almost like an abstract Picasso-like lulav and etrog, right? And then we have, we start getting weird things like the lions, maybe the lions of, of Judah, perhaps. We have geese, you know, I'm not sure what that's all about. And then when we go on, we get here a very nice um, menorah, and we have the lulav, it's in a vase. See that lulav? And over here is the etrog, and I can zoom in. 
this is the etrog. You see how it's like kind of connected to the lulav in this vase, right? So, you know, Judaism back then, like today, is very, um, very different ways of doing it. Um, here we are starting to look at um, a grave plaque. If you want to say this was a Jew, what do you do? Menorah, oil, lulav, etrog. Right? So this is, how you, this is how you say this is a Jewish place, a Jewish grave. I saw this on Monday. This is in the Metropolitan. Um, and this is a plaque at a synagogue. Again, I don't know what's with these geese. I'm not sure what that, that's about. But we have our menorah and we have um, our lulav, etrog, and shofar. Here we have a coin from the Bar Kokhba period. And you have two things. You have a, either a temple or a Torah ark. And you have over here a lulav. And an etrog. See that etrog? So a coin. How do I make this coin Jewish? Right? How am I, how is this not a Roman coin? You put a lula of an etrog on it. Here we have a piece of glass. And here we have the lula, the lula right in the middle. And the etrog right by the side of it. And I don't think this is any more important than the menorah by being in the middle. I just think the menorah on, is really curved. So you can kind of put it on this side and on this side. It just artistically makes a lot of sense. But the lulav etrog is right in the middle, and this is plated gold. And over here we have a synagogue entrance. This is from Rome. You have your lulav and etrog right at the beginning. A column. We were talking about those columns in the, in the temples. So this is from Greece. We have a lulav and an etrog and a menorah. This is how you did it. We don't do this today. There's no, there's no etrog anywhere today. The etrog is about Sukkot. It's not about, it's not about Judaism or Jews, right? Um, this is one of my favorite things. This is in the Israel Museum, and I think it's a really big shame that they're not right next to each other. It's a really big shame because there's like five items in the middle. When I feel like if you put them together, you really see the juxtaposition. So how do you say this lamp is, is Jewish? Menorah? How do you say this lamp is Christian? Cross. Cross. And I don't understand it, a bull's head. There's something with a bull's head here. Maybe a butcher or something, I don't know. Okay? And so these are, so just kind of finishing up, what we have are some synagogues, and here we have the etrog. And notice that kind of bent in shape. Did you guys ever see that on the etrog? It's called the gartel, which is Yiddish for a belt. The etrogums sometimes have a belt, so you see how it kind of pinches in at the middle, like the hourglass. You see that? So these are our two etrogum and the menorah. And that's it. And so here we basically end our journey. We started in the land of Yunnan with, you know, coming from almost nothing. There were many fruits around it. It wasn't important. Growing naturally to India, being brought by the Persians throughout the empire, and then finally being picked up by the Jews. And, you know, this was the first foreign fruit to make its way west. And so it was, in a way, really lucky that it became this. And afterwards, the Jews are the only ones who still care about it. You know, everyone's moved on to oranges and so on and, and grapefruits. Um, for good reason, they're very tasty, but, the, but, but in Judaism, the etrog really has uh, a really important place. So, I will end with this, so how valuable? So, one more time, how valuable do you think a jingwan is? Ten cents. Ten cents. What about a matalunga? Ten dollars. What about a wadring? I think it was 57, right? Right, 57, right? And finally, an etrog. Right? Uh, whatever you can pay for it, but you're going to use it on the Sukkot. Okay, um, so that's it. Thank you for inviting me. Um, what I'd just like to tell you at the end here is that I teach classes about this. 
culture, not just the text, not just the language, but culture. What, how are things playing out in society? What are people doing? What are they, how are they differentiating themselves? How are they making their lives special? And so I teach this at biblicalculture.org. And what we basically do is we have upcoming live classes where you can participate. These are no longer upcoming. I just taught these, um, Kohelet and Egypt. But we teach classes like this, and we also have recordings. And I will say there are some flyers on the, on the tables. If any of you are interested, we will be doing a live online summer kind of intensive he biblical Hebrew class. So if you've ever wanted to really read the Torah on your own and understand what's going on with the translations, or any book, Kohelet, um, Esther, anything like that, just get, that's out there for you. Um, and thank you very much, that's it. We have, uh, we have time for a few quick questions. Before the questions, the reason I wanted to bring the program here is because I find Judaism obviously very fascinating. That's why, uh, I'm, uh, why I keep reading and learning and why we have CSP. But this is just an incredible example of something we, we take for granted um, and we use during our holidays. Uh, and David has been able, this is a, a passion um, of his. This is not, I mean, we talked about this is, something that you've just learned over the years and been interested in. Maybe someone will ask how David got interested in this. But this shows you how our tradition is so rich and comes from such an interesting place that the etrog comes from China and how it made its way into our um, tradition. Okay, we had a question over here. If you took really good care of your etrog, how long could it last? That's a good question. It depends on you know, how much fruit is in it. If, it's, if it has a lot of fruit, it's going to start rotting. But if it's like a, a, a peel etrog and it will slowly kind of just shrink and shrink and shrink, um, it will be nice for, for months, months. And that may be why it was the first fruit to get out. You know, it kind of lasted. So, yeah. Um, but but if, you, if you just leave it in your etrog box and you come back a year later, by that time it's going to be brown and hard. So by for sure not a year. Maybe... Six months, something like that? Okay. When a symbol that is so important to Judaism becomes so expensive, it seems that the danger with that is to price the practice out of the hands of the common Jew who can't afford even a hundred dollar right. etrog. And so short of organizations like Chabad going around and giving everybody an opportunity right. to touch one and shake one and hold one, right. um, how do you react to that, the implication of of the price, pricing out certain Jews yeah. from the practice. So, I, on a personal story, I, I, I'll say I grow my own etrog tree. And, and you might think, oh, that's great, he's found the answer. But it costs me a ton of money to grow this thing. I have a, I have a, uh, I had to install a, a lamp in the basement. And every time I have workers come in, they're always like, what's going on in there? <laughs> like, what are you growing over there, David? Um, and yeah, so it, it's, I've had it for 10 years and only this year I got my first fruit, but it was because of that lamp. So it's, it, you know, for people who aren't here in California, it's a little harder, but you know, if you can grow it out here, just do it and gift it to your friends. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Here, here it's actually pretty easy to grow it at CBI. I know there's an etrog tree. If you walk in, you'll see these massive etrogs. The Malmans have like grapefruit size and massive. Massive etrogs at the Malman's house. They make liqueur out of it, which is the opposite of what you're supposed to use it for, right? Um, okay, question. Right. Question. It's, uh, it's, 
right? Because it helps you. So a little, a little more about that. The thought of a agricultural product that you can neither eat nor get high on being so expensive is just a marvel of modern marketing. Right. Um, right. No. Yeah. Um, is there any special procedures for it? Does it have to be prepared or cut specially? Does it have to be done by a rabbi? So, so you know, can, um, can anybody take it, uh, grow one, and have a uh, ritual etrog? Yeah. Um, right. So a lot of different. Let's tease out a few things there. Um, the first thing about like it, it becoming so important and not being used, right? That's just like a cultural choice. Like I went to the jeweler to get my wife's engagement ring knowing that she's not going to use it for like let's say a surgical tool or you know to cut open a rock you know she just was, it's just for prettiness um and so it was like that was the choice to spend that money for that um and then uh, the second part about about your question oh, i'm blanking on it was right okay so right Right, so this is, this is the debate of modern Judaism, and it depends on how you practice. Um, do you feel that you need a rabbi's sign to tell you something is kosher? So if you, if you like that, then you should definitely buy with the strains. But if it doesn't really matter to you, an etrog's an etrog. You can grow your own, and you don't have to worry about that. I'm like, I grow my own, I use my own. I'm not worried about the etrog that I got it from being contaminated in any way. So... Um, yeah, it's really up to you if you want that input. And the thing is, is that as, as Judaism becomes more like Judaisms, right, every group in Israel is having their own special, there's the Chazonish type of etrog, there's the Bravender type of etrog, there's, there's this, and you need to make sure that it came from the tree, that came from the tree, that came from his tree, right? So like, but that also has to do with the way they practice, that they need people in Israel, some people need a big stamp of approval. So it, it's up to you. I'm, I can't give you an answer. But yeah, like if you want to go to your house, I would say go for it. I would say go for it. Um, but if you, but, but I guess the question, is there any halachic requirement of the etrog that's in the actual text? Well, there are laws about the et Right. Right. Aside from the right. tone. Right, there are many laws. It can't be spotted. It can't be this. But you know, the types of things that we can do today, like we can genetically see what percent of the fruit is etrog. Like I can just send it to a lab. Right? They didn't have that concept in in even a hundred years ago. Right? So like the question of is it the pure type of citrus medica, it's kind of to me um, a, a modern question as opposed to more of like the ancients. Like oh, it's an etrog. It's done. Yeah. We have time for just one or two more questions. Yeah, since uh, we're known to be obsessed with food, have you done this kind of study with any other foods? With any food, meaning like things coming from other traditions? Yeah, traditions, the history of foods. Yeah, I don't Jewish. know, but like I'm, I'm, I know people have, and it's kind of obvious like when you look at it, like I love gefilte fish, and it's like no one else I know does. <laughs> you know, it's because I came from that, those lands, and my friends like Lachmajin and Kibbeh, and all, the, and all that stuff from the, from the Mizrahi and Sephardi lands. So um, obviously things have crept in. And like, I guess, do we have any American foods that, that have made their way into Judaism? Oh, um, what is it? On Christmas Eve, many people do Chinese food, right? 
or Christmas Day, something like that. Yeah, Christmas, Christmas like, Day. right. Like that is because we're here, and like that was not a hundred years ago. So like wherever you live, clearly things are going to come in. Yeah. And just to uh, any more questions before I finish up. So how did you get interested in this subject? Because this is not, is this your focus of your life yeah, study? So, is this, so how is this your MA, PhD, all those different degrees? What did you? So how did I become an atrogologist? Um, yeah, so this wasn't my PhD. My PhD was totally different. Um, I actually, so two things happened at about the same time. Uh, about 12 years ago, after Sukkot, I cut open my fruit, I put the seeds in the, in the dirt, and lo and behold, it started growing. So, and that's the tree I have today, right? That's the same tree. Um, and it's died like 30 times. And that's why I got the lamp, and finally it's doing good. Um, so if anyone wants to talk about how to grow things in a basement, you know, let me know. Um, so that was one thing. So I really liked it. And then I took a class. I don't know how many people would ever even sign up for a class like this, but I did in graduate school. It was a, a bib a advanced level biblical Hebrew class all about syntactic ambiguity. And who, I, I, I see faces of horror. How would you talk? But like, what? We were four or five. We were four or five. Um, and so syntactic ambiguity, the best example is if you're going to, let's say, let's say, say right now, bye everyone, I'm going to a big shoe sale. So I could be going to like a really nice sale huge sale, thousands of pairs of shoes, or I could be going to like a, a, a sale of big clown shoes, or like Shaquille O'Neal shoes. I'm going to a big, it's both the same. Is it a big shoe sale, or is it a big shoe sale, right? Uh, and that's what the etrog is, pre Hadar. Is it fruit of a beautiful tree, or is it beautiful fruit from a tree? And so that was that ambiguity, and that's how I wrote a paper on that, and um, ever since, I've been really interested in it. Because I, once I started doing the, the, the research on the grammar, I started seeing people quoting this book by a guy named Tolkowski. Um, he was in Israel, it was, he was before Israel. So he was, first he was part of the Palestine-like citrus committee, and then he became the State of Israel citrus committee. Like he was there 48 times. And he wrote a whole book on the Etrog, had some really fanciful ideas. But it was really interesting. And so I started looking at the history and, and all of that, and China and all that stuff. That's how I got into it. Just one last question. What does it taste like? I know you said there's no fruit, but it's, it's part of the citrus family. Right. And the zest does... Yeah. So if I would give it to you right now, it would hard, be hard to tell the difference between that and a lemon. They taste so similar. Um, and a lot of etrogim do have more fruit. Like, remember we saw those, the ninja giant? Right? You can cut that open, you'll get some fruit, right? Um, so it, it tastes like a lemon, the zest is like a lemon, and often it's hard to distinguish from a lemon. They're very similar. And in terms of the evolutionary bio, biology, most people think it's, it's some debate in the science, most people think that the lemon came from the etrog. So that's how it came. So I, I, my hope is that this blew your mind a bit, because I actually heard this lecture online. I was like, it was so awesome. I'm not going to share the lecture with you, because I'm going to bring David here, and he can tell you in person. This is so awesome. This is where our tradition comes from. It comes from China, and it got to Israel. So I want to blow your mind a little more before we leave, and, and this is true. So David, when we opened the Torah scroll yeah. at synagogue, you guys all looked into a Torah scroll? And you know what? We have the, the writing. We read the holiest language. 
Do you know what language is in the Torah that we read from? It is not Hebrew, my friends. It's Aramaic. It's Aramaic block print. The underlying words are ancient Hebrew words. But what we're looking at is an adoption of a contemporary language during, I believe, Ezra's time to make the Torah scroll readable for the people at that time who read block print Aramaic. Point being, our tradition is very rich. It's got layers to it. And the more we learn, the more we want to learn. So I want to thank David for being here thank to show coming. us some of those layers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay. Oh, wait. David, tell them quick where you're going today so that they know what we have in Orange County. Oh, the, so the, the, the third most popular park in Tustin is, is a citrus grove. It's called Citrus Ranch Park. So I'm going to go there. They apparently have a lemon, lemons growing. Um, and I wish my daughter and son were here because there's, the main attraction is like there's a, there's a, uh, like a little park for kids. But I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'm going to take a walk, you know, get moving, a little exercise. I thought that would be the perfect place to do it. So. And then Cal State in Riverside. Oh, tomorrow. Right. Oh, so, so another citrus thing. Tomorrow, um, the University of California at Riverside actually has a world-class citrus collection center. So they have growing two types of trees for every different strain that they can find. So I think they have about 30 different types of etrog. So that would be about 60 etrog trees. And I can't just imagine how many orange trees and, lim and limes and things like that. So if you're interested in growing citrus fruits, I know they sell things, you can check them out online. So, so you'll send us a picture of the etrog you find, and I'll share. If they let me take one, I don't know. Oh, I'm sure they it's, a, it's a real. Thank you guys for coming out. See you uh, in a few weeks in December. Okay, great. Thank you.